0: This morning, we're going to be in the book of Malachi, uh, going through our series, What Does God See? But before we do that, I want to share with you a little story about uh, something that happened to me about three years ago. It was uh, the summer of 2013. I was stationed in Japan with my family, and a few of the guys with um, uh, what I worked with decided we were going to go to Mount Fuji and climb Mount Fuji. Anybody ever been to Japan, climb Mount Fuji before? All right, cool. So. Let me tell you how it is on Mount Fuji. <laughs> the thing about Mount Fuji is that you have to, um, unless you're an experienced climber, you can't even get on the mountain until the first weekend of July. The mountain is closed, there's snow on it, uh, it's windy, it's cold, it's just miserable conditions. So unless you're like an extreme climber or you know, you've know you done those kind of things before, um, they won't let you on the mountain. Well, a couple of my friends from work, we decided to fly into Tokyo, take hour ride to Mount Fuji, climb the mountain and, you know, take pictures and have, you know, been there, done that. Well, the weekend we went was the very first weekend that the mountain was open. And so there was still some snow. There was definitely a lot of wind, definitely a lot of rain. And uh, the guys that we were with, everybody came prepared with all of their clothing, with all of their hiking boots and everything else, except for one guy. There was one guy. and. And I'll I'll tell you this before I say the story. We had no remorse for the guy after the fact, all right? Because everybody knew what was gonna happen when we climbed Mount Fuji on the first weekend that it was gonna be open. It was gonna be cold, it was gonna be raining, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this one guy decided not to bring any, any protective gear, like a coat or anything. He didn't bring anything with him. So it's kind of weird. As you climb Mount Fuji, you start, most people start around the afternoon, around noon, they climb a certain distance, they spend the night in one of the cabins on the mountain, then you wake up very early in the morning to get to the top of the mountain so that you can see the sunrise coming out from the distance. So we decided to do that, that's what we do, that's what you do when you're on Mount Fuji. Well, that one guy who didn't bring any of his gear had to make it from five in the morning all the way to the top of the mountain, freezing to death, in the cold, in the haze, in the snow, in the sleet, in all those things, he got literally to the top of the mountain. I take, he didn't get it to the top of the mountain. He got about from where I'm standing right now to about the back of the sanctuary, okay? And as you get to that point in the mountain, there's actually a, a turn that you make. And there you can see the top. He never made that turn. Before he got to that turn, he looked at me and he said, I can't go on any further. It's too cold. I, I, I got to go back down the mountain. So he turned around, went back down. Little did we know that the top of the mountain was right where that door was. We ragged on him for the rest of the time that we knew him. <laughs> you didn't make it to the top of Mount Fuji, okay? Whatever, however many feet this is, you didn't make it, okay? You were distracted by the wind, the rain, by all the things that got in your way. You did not see the top of the mountain. Isn't that how it is sometimes in our life with God? All the things come, the distractions, the wind, the rain, the distractions of life, and God is right there. But we can't see Him through the haze, through the sleet, through the snow, through the things that happen in our life. I I share that story with you today because it reminds me a lot about what we're going to talk about today. When we think about God's presence in our life, when we think about what God sees, is God really with us? Is God really there for us? In the midst of all the things that are happening in life, can we really trust in who God is and what God says in His Word? This morning is the fourth message in our series, What God Sees. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verses 17, and going through chapter 3, verses uh, 12. And as you, uh, if you turn there, I'm going to, pray and let's just ask God to bless this time this morning. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have together as a church to open your word. I thank you for this time that we have to share together in worship and singing and worshiping you together as a family of, of Christ. I pray, Lord, that as your word is read this morning, God, I just pray that you would speak through me. I pray that your word would just be the thing that sticks out this morning as we are gathered and as we think about the words that you have written here, that you would just touch our hearts Pray, speak to each one of us wherever we may be at in our walk and relationship with you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 17. You know, as we've seen in the previous messages that uh, we've had on this this passage of Scripture in this book, things in Israel are really upside down. You know, things are not the way they should be. In fact, um, you know, things are so bad that people have a wrong perspective on worship, People have the wrong perspective on live, on life. People have the wrong perspective on marriage standards. Things are just upside down. They're completely turned around. They're not what you would expect. In fact, Malachi in chapter two, verse 17, he actually says this at the end of chapter 17, or chapter two. He says, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Things were so bad in the nation of Israel that the things that were good were being called evil, and the things that were evil were being called good, and the people even believed that God delighted in that fact. That's powerful. Not unlike today, I would say, in a lot of areas, right? The situation in Malachi's time was one in which there was a complete disregard for a lot of things. There was a disregard for the, the temple, the priesthood, the Sabbath. There was a disregard, as I mentioned already, for marriage standards, for things that you wouldn't assume there would be a problem with. There was. Things were upside down. Things were wrong. They weren't as they should be. And when we get to the beginning of our passage today that we're looking at, the people ask a question. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied Him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And here's the question. Oh, where is the God of justice? Where is this God of justice? Things are upside down. Things are not the way they should be. The top of the mountain is right there, but we can't see it. Where is the God of justice? Where is he? Where is he? I think many of us have asked that question in our life before. Where is God? Is God really present in the things that are happening in our world today when evil seems rampant and sin is, is, is everything we see around us? Where is the God of justice today? Is God really silent? This is really the question that the Israelites are asking at this time. And you know what's funny about it? They may not have come out and said, where is the God of justice? But Malachi and his, his message here, he's giving it to us in a prophetic voice as if the people are thinking one thing and that's what they really believe. They're thinking in their minds, where is the God of justice? It's almost like as if they're given an accusatory tone towards God. If God, if you're really there, where are you? Everything's wrong, it's not the way it should be. Where is the God of justice? Can I ask you a question this morning? Where is God? Is God silent even today in our life? Is God silent? If you have an insert this morning, this is going to be your first bulletin, we'll talk about this. Sin and complacency will bring silence from God. Sin and complacency will bring silence from God. I think it's obvious that the sin part is taken care of as we take a look at Malachi. The people were in steeped in sin. They were not following God. Sin was rampant. You know, one of the things about Malachi is that, if I can put this kind of in context, is Malachi, uh, Malachi occurs in a narrative timeline, if you will, if you allow me to use that word, at the end of the Old Testament. Can we take a minute and do an experiment here, a little experiment a here, little, um, a little activity, if you will? Turn, keep your book in, in your finger in Malachi, but turn to the, the table of contents of your Bible. If you're in the youth group, high school group, I apologize because I did this this morning with you, all right, but this is for your parents now. They can, they can hear what we were talking about this morning. I want us to get a perspective of what we're talking about. What is the time frame here? Where are we, what's going on in the nation of Israel at the time? How many books are there in the Old Testament? Anybody know? 39. You can say it loud. It's okay. How many books? Thirty-nine. Everybody say 39. 39. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. And before I go any further, I want everybody to know that this is God's Word. I believe this is God's Word. Every, every, Every page, every word is God's Word. But for the sake of our experiment, just go along with me this morning, okay? 39 books in the Old Testament, if I were to break those 39 books down and give you a narrative timeline of the Old Testament, I'm only talking about eight, maybe nine books. How many of you this morning, we can be honest, I'll raise my hand to you. How many of us this morning started that Bible reading plan at the beginning of January, we started in Genesis, and we made it to maybe Exodus, and then we'll start again next year, right? Anybody ever been in that boat before where you tried that? I'm going to read through the Bible, right? And it's just too much. It seems like 39 books is too many books to read, right? Check this out. 39 books in the Old Testament. But really, if you want to follow the story of the Old Testament, it's about eight or nine books. Let me walk you through that if you're in the table of contents. Genesis, Exodus. Right? Then you've got Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus pretty much repeats and expands on the law and the things that were given in Exodus. So, if you want to follow a narrative timeline, you've got Genesis, Exodus, a couple chapters in Numbers, a couple chapters in Deuteronomy. Again, this is God's Word, but in terms of a storyline. Everybody's tracking with me? Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. There's your biblical narrative for the Old Testament. Okay, it seems kind of weird because we believe in 39 books of the the Old Testament, which we're totally cool with that but for in terms of a biblical narrative, a timeline of the scriptures, that kind of breaks it down easy for us. Ezra and Nehemiah are the last books that describe what's happening at the time of Malachi. In fact, Malachi, his, contempor- his contemporaries are Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Esther. Okay, so those five plus Malachi, those six books really give us a good description of what's happening at this time in Israel. And I share that with you because I want to make sure that we have kind of a a good understanding of what's going on and what's happening at this time of Scripture. And also, I hope that helps some of you who are reading through the Scriptures and think it's a daunting task. The Old Testament can really be broken down into nine books. All those other prophets fill in some of the other pieces that are happening. Does that help anybody out? Okay. So this is where we find Malachi. At the end of the Old Testament, all right, at this time, the temple in Jerusalem... Has been rebuilt the city walls of Jerusalem have started to be reconstructed and, and built all right and Malachi at this time is asking the question where is the God of justice God is, seems to be silent but has God really been silent no at least six books of the Bible are dedicated to this particular time of the scriptures so we can see right off that the, off the bat that the sin of the people had blinded them to what God had been doing in their midst. At least six books of the 39 in the Old Testament were dedicated this time of what was happening. God has not been silent. However, because of the sin that's in the people's life, they were not able to see what God was doing. You know, Israel, of course, was the nation of God. Israel was the nation of God. God had chosen them, he had made his presence known to them. At this time in in the story of the nation of Israel, things were not as they were. Wasn't it God who promised Abraham that his nation would be a nation of blessing to all people? It kind of reminds me of the glory days of life. We've all got the glory days of life. Those moments in our life where we can think back to the times that were just wonderful. They were just memories that we share for the rest of our life that will never go away for us. For me in particular, the glory days of my life are living in Los Los Angeles, being in my dad's car, driving from our home in Burbank, about an hour's drive to San Pedro to the beach. And you know what I remember about those times? I remember hearing on the radio, the Beatles. (laughs) I just remember hearing, do you want to know a secret? That's... There was a million songs on the radio when I was growing up, but that's the one song I remember. It's just that's been etched in my mind. And you know what? We probably only did that like one time. That song only played probably one time. But for whatever reason, that memory has been etched in my mind. The glory days of my youth, you know, living and just enjoying life. We've all got those memories of the glory days of our life. You know, it may be a little too soon, but, uh, you know, I just got here in in August. We just moved here in August. Can I talk about the Buffalo Bills? Is that... Am I allowed to do that yet? Four straight Super Bowls, right? I don't know if those were the glory days, but that seems like an accomplishment to me, even though they didn't win. We'll move on. Okay. (laughs) But you know, you understand what I'm saying, right? We miss those days. Our our young people, I talked to them this morning, right? Our parents always say, well, back in my day, right, all that stuff. You know, even this morning, um, we have cereal upstairs for the youth. We bring them cereal. We have a little container. And when Denise and I were looking at, at the cereal aisle, we were like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. I remember that one. You know, the box, they have now they have the cereal in retro boxes, so it looks like when we were younger. But you know, we just think of the olden days, the glory days of our life, okay, right? You know what I'm talking about. This is where we're at in the nation of Israel. There's no glory days right now. This is as bleak as we get. I mean, we're in sin. It doesn't seem like God is speaking to us. It seems like all is lost. You know, the nation has just come out of captivity, and where are we at? Where's God? Where's the God of justice? Where's the top of this mountain? How do I get there? I can't see anything because there's sin in my life. Okay? Complacency. Haggai, who was one of the contemporaries of Malachi, spoke several years before him. Um, He talks about complacency in the nation of Israel. In fact, before the temple is built, Haggai says to the people, why is it that you are living in your houses, and yet God's temple, God's house is in shambles. You had been moved back into Israel, but yet you've just let the things of God go by the wayside. You've been complacent. The sin and complacency in their life had allowed them to believe that God was silent. But we know that God is not silent. Can I tell you this morning that if you're in a place where God is silent in your life, If there's sin or complacency in your life, you need to ask God to help you get rid of that and you need to repent. God is not silent. His word is not silent. He's here. But there might be something blocking the way for him to speak to you and for him to draw you close to him. And that brings us to point number two. Repentance and sacrifice will bring the presence of God. Malachi begins chapter 3 with answering the question that was just asked, where is the God of justice? He says says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Did you catch that? The question is, where is the God of justice? Where are you, God? And what's God's answer? Behold, I'm coming. I'm coming. Of course, as we take a look at uh, this this passage here in Malachi, behold, I send my messenger, God tells the people that he's actually going to send somebody before he comes, a messenger. All right? This idea of a messenger is nothing new in the Bible. The prophets were messengers from God. In fact, Malachi's name actually means my messenger. So there's a little bit of a play on words going on here. You know, I think of the prophets like, um, like uh, Jonah who was sent to the Ninevites, right? There was a specific message that he was given as God's messenger. We think in the New Testament of the apostles. I mean, that specifically means somebody who was sent personally by Jesus Christ, an apostle. So we have that understanding in our, in our minds of what a messenger is, all right? In this particular passage, it's very obvious, knowing what the New Testament says, that this particular passage is referring to John the Baptist. Okay, and we're going to take a look at a couple of verses that relate to that. But I want you to understand, I want you to kind of grasp here what's going on. At this point in history of Israel, it seems that God is silent, but God says, I'm sending a messenger, and then I will, I will come. The New Testament associates the promise of this messenger with John the Baptist. In actuality, there are four. There are five different verses in the New Testament that relate to this messenger idea that God is talking about here. All right, and in actuality, this is one of a handful of of verses, one of a handful of texts that is actually repeated in all four Gospels. So that's very important because not everything is repeated in every single one of the four Gospels. But the very fact that John is the messenger, John the Baptist is a messenger of God, is repeated in all four of the Gospels. Let me give you those verses this morning. And if you have a pen, you can write them down. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. So Matthew actually quotes in in chapter 11, verse 10. He actually quotes verbatim Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Again, Mark quotes Malachi. And then you've got Luke, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and John, chapter 1, 23. That's Luke, chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and John, chapter 1, verse 23. What's interesting to note about the use of this passage as it refers to John the Baptist is that the New Testament writers also include Isaiah chapter 40 as part of this messenger theme that John the Baptist fulfills. In fact, let me read that passage of Scripture to you from Isaiah. He says, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all f- flesh shall see the salvation of God. Isaiah says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So when the Bible in the New Testament refers to John the Baptist as the messenger who will precede the Lord's coming, he actually uses two, they actually use two verses of scripture, Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah 40. And I want to make sure we don't miss out on what's trying to get stressed here. What was John the Baptist's message? The Bible says that John the Baptist's message was repentance for the remission of sins. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Isn't it interesting that a messenger who would speak about repentance is prophesied in the Old Testament at a time when the nation was in need of repentance? I find that interesting. I don't know if you do, but it's kind of interesting. It's, it's a beautiful thing how God's word is tied together here. That God is speaking to the nation about repentance. I am not silent, but repentance needs to happen in order for you to hear what I'm saying, in order to, for you to receive my blessing. Let's talk about the Lord's presence for a moment. Can we do that? Notice in Malachi chapter 3, the Lord says that the messenger will prepare my way and then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple I mean how much more of God's presence do we want than him to actually be with us let me take us back once again to where we are at in the nation of Israel at this point in the nation of Israel they have a temple they have the city is being rebuilt but there's something unique that's going on in the nation at this time if you remember from the Bible stories of God, God's presence in the temple, you may recall a couple of those in Exodus when the first tabernacle is built. And Moses takes the people, he instructs them to build this beautiful temple. And at, this, at the time when all the, all the things are done in the temple, the priests go into the Holy of Holies, they bring the ark, and what happens? God's presence physically, literally, through a cloud, fills the temple, the tabernacle of meeting. It's so, the priests are so overwhelmed that they have to actually leave the the presence of God. They can't minister, they can't do anything because God's presence is so powerful in the, the tabernacle. God literally, physically, in the in the form of the cloud, shows up in their presence. Okay? A few years later, Solomon builds a temple. Beautiful temple, puts gold on all over the place. It's beautiful. What happens? Solomon has a dedication ceremony. The priests, the Levites who were ministering in the temple, God's presence once again literally and physically shows up through the cloud and they are overwhelmed and they have to leave the temple because God's presence has overwhelmed them. And then, unfortunately, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians and 70 years later they're allowed to rebuild the temple at this point in our narrative there's a few guys that come and inspire the nation of Israel to build the temple and now the second temple is standing in Jerusalem but you know what's unique about this time period there's no indication that God's presence was in that temple There's no indication that God's presence, there's no narrative in the scripture that says they had a dedication ceremony and God's presence came down and filled the temple. There is a a passage that says they had a dedication ceremony, but there's no passage of scripture that says God's glory filled that temple. Does that help you to see why they may be wondering why God is silent? Because God's presence doesn't seem to be around them. But what does God say in Malachi? I will come to the temple. I will be there. I will be in the midst of that temple." After the events recorded in Malachi, right, I'm not, I, I enjoy history, but I hate dates, so I'm not going to give you a bunch of dates, all right? But after Malachi is done, and there's 400 years of silence in the, in the, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a lot of things happen in the temple. In fact, some dude even comes in and sacrifices a pig on the altar, okay? Which of course, if, if you know anything about Jewish culture, that's, anything with pork is, is a no-go. So the the temple gets desecrated. It It gets in shambles, okay? Just right before Jesus comes on the scene, Herod the Great decides to rebuild the temple, all right? He decides to make it this beautiful thing. In fact, Josephus, a historian, mentions this about the temple that Herod built during the time of Jesus. He says, Herod in the 18th year of his reign undertook a very great work, that is to build of himself the temple of God and make it larger in compass, and to raise it to a most magnificent altitude, as esteeming it to be the most glorious of all his actions, as it really was, to bring it to perfection, and that this would be sufficient for an everlasting memorial to Herod." Think about it. You're you're a Jewish person living during Jesus' time, and there's a temple whose God's presence has not been manifest in a cloud, and the temple that you're looking at was built as a memorial to who? To a man, not to God. In fact, most historians, um, agree, uh, most historians say that the temple that Herod built was built with marble, white marble. It had gold all over it. So even during the middle of the day, that temple literally glowed in the dark. It was, it was so bright because the sun would shine on it and it would just everywhere. You would see it for miles around because it was so bright. But it was a testimony, and it was a monument dedicated to man, even though the Jews used it at the time. Again, it would seem that God is not with us, but yet God says, I will send my messenger, and we know that John the Baptist comes. Folks, can I tell you this morning that God desires to dwell with his people? And what it would seem that God is silent, he is not. Jesus came as a man, walked on the earth, lived a life, went to the temple. Did you get that? Jesus as the God-man went to the temple. Jesus went to the temple. God fulfilled His promise to the nation of Israel that He would appear at the temple through Jesus Christ. In fact, The Bible says that in the latter times, when the Lord returns, that there will be an even greater temple. That the temple will literally bust forth from the sky. Revelation indicates in Revelation chapter 21 that Christ the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, He will be the source and the glory of the coming temple. There is no need for a temple because Jesus is the glory of the temple as the glory of God. And His glory will fill the whole earth. Repentance and sacrifice bring the presence of God. John preached a message of repentance so that we would know God's glory. He prepared the way for Jesus to come and to live the life that he did. But he preached a message of repentance and Jesus came. And of course we know the mission of Jesus was to die on the cross for our sins and to be buried, buried and to rise again three days later. This morning, if you feel like God is distant from you, if you feel like God is not with you, when we ask that question, uh, how do you treat God? Think about your relationship with, where, with God and where it's at right now. Have you come to a place where you said, I need the, repent- I need the forgiveness that only Jesus can give? Have you taken that step of repentance and turned toward the Lord? Because if you haven't, then God's going to be silent. It's going to appear to you that God is silent, because you're, just not, you're not in tune with what God is saying or what God is doing. That filter is preventing you from, a filter of sin is preventing you from seeing what God is doing. In order to experience the presence of God, there needs to be a time when sin is forsaken and repentance is embraced. This is what God made clear in His word. In fact, in a few minutes, we're actually going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and this is the picture of the Lord's Supper. There's a cup with blood, which represents the, a cup not with blood, but with grape juice that represents the blood of Jesus. And there's the bread, which represents the body that was broken for us. In fact, Paul says in his letters, we shouldn't even take the Lord's Supper unless we look at our own life and we make sure that we're not in a place of sin. As a church, we celebrate communion. We invite anyone to partake in the communion. But as a warning, if you're not in a place where your heart is right with God, maybe this morning is not the time for you to do the communion. Or at least take a moment before we do it and get your heart right with God. But this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus did. When we think God is silent, we just have to look to the communion table as a a reminder of what Jesus did to say that God is not silent. In fact, it's written on the table, in remembrance of me. We have to remember what God did for us through Jesus Christ. Let's move on through the rest of the scripture before we take the communion because I think it's important that we kind of have some action steps in terms of what all this means for us this morning. Malachi continues in chapter 3. He asks, who can endure the day of his coming? We've already talked about this. When God comes, he's looking for those who have been refined in the fire, whose hearts have been clean. Malachi says that when the Lord comes, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the glory days. God will receive those blessings. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 7. From days of old you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said... In what way shall we return? Here's that question again. Here's that accusatory tone from the people. How have, we, uh, you know, how have we done this, Lord? The Lord answers in verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouses, that there may be food in my house, and try me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Repentance and sacrifice bring the blessing of God. This morning, as we think about offerings, as we think about what the tithe and offerings, I'm not going to get too much into that. Pastor Milo did that a couple of weeks ago. But I do want to add this. As we think about that idea that repentance And sacrifice, bring the presence of God. The offering was a sacrifice, literally a sacrifice. I think that's lost on us today when we think about the offering simply being something we put in a plate, a a, a cash or a check or online or whatever you do it, where it's like we just put it in a plate, it goes into some mysterious room in the church, and then we get at the end of the year a statement that says, We gave this much money, right? We kind of get lost on the fact that in the Old Testament, You literally had to bring your animal, or whatever it is, your grain, you literally had to bring it to the altar, and in some cases, you were the one who had to kill it, or wring its neck, or the priest did it, or whatever the case may be, and then it was literally burned on an an altar, on a sacrifice. We lose that imagery today when we think of the offering, okay? But think about this. The offering, that sacrifice that they gave, was their livelihood. It was... That was how they measured their wealth and their, and their, their animals. You know, if you had more, more sheep than another guy, then you were richer than the other guy because you had more to trade with or you had more to barter with, okay? We don't think of the offering in that terms. Today, we just think of, here's money on a plate. Okay, that's great. Now, we should do this one Sunday, Pastor Miley. We should have a burning altar up here and for the sacrifice, <laughs> and for the sacrifice, because this is literally what it is, Everyone lines up, puts their $1, $100, and just lets it burn right here. That's, that's how important, that's what the sacrifice was. You brought your livelihood and you literally gave it to God. God says, you're not even sacrificing to me. Your, your idea of worship is totally skewed. But bring the tithe to the storehouse. Bring your offering. That act of sacrifice needs to happen if you want to experience my blessing. Again, this is not a message on tithing, but I want you to get a different perspective on that. Because so many times we do talk about the offering, we do talk about the tithe, that's simply just what you give and that's all great. But put your, put your mind wrap wrap your mind around that. This is literally what it is, right? We talk about you're burning money, burn a hole in your pocket. I mean, literally that's what happens, right? But it's about the sacrifice that, that happened. God said, Bring it, and I will open the windows of heaven that there will not be room enough to receive it. There will not be room enough to receive the blessing that you're going to receive from God. If I'm being honest with you, it's nice for us to hear a pastor say, you know, a tithe could be anything, an offering could be anything. Think about what God was saying in 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 the Scriptures about what it was, your livelihood, okay? Let God bless you from that. And here we are here we as we kind of wrap it up here we think about that sin and repentance will bring silence from god i'm sorry sin and complacency will bring silence from god but repentance and sacrifice will bring the blessing of god really when we ask ourselves you know how do we treat god what does god see how do we treat god The way we treat God is really the way we treat ourselves. If we don't believe God's word is true, if we don't believe God will bless us, then that has more to say about who who we are and our faith than it does anything about God, because God's not changing. His ways are sure. His ways will never change. He's loved us. He died on the cross for us. Jesus rose again to give us new life. God's not changing. How about us? Are we allowing God to change our life? Are we allowing him to work through us, to use us, to draw us closer to Him. It only happens with repentance and sacrifice. This morning, there may be some here today who have never come to a place in their life where they've repented or where they've sacrificed or they've thought of that, giving their life to the Lord. Paul says in in Romans 12.1, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This morning there may be some people in here who have never literally asked the Lord to forgive them of their sins and asked God to come into their life through Jesus Christ. Don't leave today without making that decision in your life. If you're here today and you're a believer in the Lord and you're not living a sacrificial life, then that's my challenge to you. Think about the things that God has said in his word about pouring out his blessing and live the life that God has called us to live. Sounds simple, but it is kind of hard because we do live in a fallen world. We live in a world full of sin. And so we need to be connected every day to where God's at and what God's doing. Let's pray this morning as the band comes up. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word, I thank You for the testimony of Your Word. I thank You for the truth of Your Word. God, we are here today, we are here this morning. I hold in my hand the Bible, 66 books that miraculously throughout history has come to us. Your Word, God. People people literally gave of themselves. They gave of what they had. They sacrifice their life, God, so that we can have the scriptures in our hands this morning to learn more about you, to draw close to you. Lord, your word says that we need to be in your presence. And the only way that's going to happen is by repentance. And God, I just pray this morning as we're gathered here, I pray that you would be in our midst. I pray that you would draw us close to you I pray for those this morning who have never come to a place where they have asked you into their life to be their Lord and Savior, God. They've never come to a place of forgiveness or repentance. I pray this morning, even as I'm praying, that you would stir their hearts. I pray that you would move in their life. Lord, you do desire for us to live a blessed life, a life of communion with you, a life that's plugged in with God, our Savior. And that's only going to happen as we're made right with you. We celebrate our Lord's Supper this morning, God. We're, remembered, we're reminded of that. And I pray you'd help us to be in a place where our hearts are right and where we are drawn close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.